everyone. Welcome back to the weekly recap. Today, we are recapping Romans chapter 15 to 2 Corinthians 3. So end of Romans, all of 1 Corinthians and beginning of 2 Corinthians because that was our assigned reading from the Bible Discovery Guide and Bible Discovery TV. If this is your first time here, I'm Corey and that's Matlock. Hey, Matlock. Hello. We're married. He's yes. my husband. So that explains the relationship. But <laughs> okay, are you ready to finish Romans? I am. Let's do it. Let's, 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 let's jump right in. I'm ready. All right, it's good. Romans 15. Um, this continues to, you know, you can't really divorce Romans 15 from Romans 12 through 14. Uh, so hopefully you remember all that was taught. You know, Paul was talking about being a living sacrifice, esteeming others better than yourself, all of that. So verse one of Romans chapter 15 says this, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So in other words, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to change our individual lives to accommodate the people around us in order to help them. This is really the opposite of what, you know, we think of in our culture today. You know, I'm going to live out my truth. I'm going to be authentic to myself and my needs and my desires and my wants. Well, in Christianity, this is the opposite, where we live as a living sacrifice to God and then we begin arranging our lives so that we can best help others. Uh, you know, instead of focusing on on ourselves, it, we should be asking ourselves questions like, how can I help others grow in Christ? How can I strengthen my Christian community? How can I strengthen my Christian the, the Christian church that I am a part of? Is there anything in my current lifestyle that's causing others to stumble, to sin, or to misunderstand Christianity or who God is? Is there a way that I'm living that's making people around me confused about Christ? Or am I sending a clear message about who God is, about who Christ is? Uh, Paul also then talks about in Romans 15 some really awesome, peaceful things, lovely things about results of a lived out faith, what that looks like in your life. And it's all good. And then we get some of Paul's travel plans because he's wrapping up this letter to the Romans. So he's talking about his travel plans. Then in Romans chapter 16, the last chapter of Romans, we get <coughs> Paul's greetings to specific people. The first person mentioned is a deacon named Phoebe. Um, and she was traveling to Rome. It's, it's believed that she was the one who was actually carrying the book of Romans, this letter of Romans to the Roman church. Uh, there's a lot of other really interesting Christian people mentioned here in chapter 16. And there's a warning, a wholesale warning to stay away from people who are causing divisions and infighting and unrest in the Christian church uh, with a focus on staying obedient to God. So don't get distracted by all of these things. Stay obedient to God. And then there's a blessing that closes out the letter. All right, let's jump into 1 Corinthians then. We're going to go through all of 1 Corinthians today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, it tells us right away that this letter was written by Paul and Sosthenes to the Christians 
in the city of Corinth. Now, the main issue that's expressed here in chapter one is division in the church. Specifically, the Corinthian church was dividing over influential Christian leaders, which sounds all too familiar today. (laughs) Sounds all too familiar. Definitely we would be doing the same thing. If we went back in time to Corinth, we would be doing the same thing because we divide over influential Christian leaders today. So the examples that were given here are pretty much the ultimate Christian leaders, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who's Peter, and the trump card, Christ. I love that because yeah. kids, I, I teach uh, children's church, Sunday school in my church. And it, it's really true. I remember when I was a kid, if the teacher asked the question, you don't know the answer, you just say Jesus or the Holy Spirit. It's like the trump card, Jesus, right? And like I feel like they're they're dividing over leaders. And one of these groups was just like, yeah, well, I follow Jesus, right? Like yeah. it's the ultimate trump card yeah. uh, when you're when you're dividing over issues. Okay, so... Uh, their teaching styles, Paul, Apollos, Peter, Cephas, and Christ, their teaching styles and emphasis in their ministries seem to have been different from one another's. But their end goal was the same, right? They're all trying to get people to salvation through Christ. That's what they're trying to do. But their emphasis is, their emphases are different. And rather than accepting that, the Corinthian church is dividing over it. Uh, Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 1 says this, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So basically, Paul's chastising the people who are following him. He goes, why are you boasting about me? I've done nothing for you except point you to Christ. Right. Why are you making me like Christ? What, what is going on here? None of our wisdom, Paul is saying, none of our wisdom as teachers matters. It's the work of Christ that matters. So stop dividing over teachers. It's the work of Christ, not the teachers himself. Verse 20 to 24 says this, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Different people, essentially. This tells us that what, what we know to be true experientially, but different people look for different things. Some look for signs, some look for wisdom, right? We're attracted to different things. Different things inspire us to follow. We see this with teachers, right? Some people really latch onto one specific teaching style while others gravitate towards a different teaching style. But none of these things save us. Signs and wisdom, different kinds of teaching, different kinds of ministries are meant to lead people to Christ, not to lead people to the teaching, to the wisdom, to the apologetics, to the signs and wonders. That's not what it's it's supposed to lead you to Christ, not to just stay there, right? So if you're following those things, wisdom or signs, you're going to fall over the stumbling block of Christ because his crucifixion was a sign of love and submission to our needs that wasn't wanted, right? It's insulting. 
to our culture. It's foolishness to their culture right. that Paul's talking about. And there's important things to, to kind of gather there because, one, it's clearly very obvious that he's saying divisions are sin. Yeah. Right? So it's like actually really bad to divide uh, because what's happening here, it's not is that they're dividing they're making things that are of lesser importance of higher importance, mm-hmm. which then which then flattens what what important things are. It makes everything mm-hmm. kind of of equal value. Yes. And in that case, what that does is that just breeds legalism and yeah. like the works will save you and all these other kind of concepts. So uh, that's a very inappropriate thing. So he's challenging this idea that like not even just like divisions are bad in the sense where you overvalue the the, the things that are inherently less valuable, like Paul yes. and Apollos over yes. over Christ's work and. That has this dangerous consequence. I know he, he, this is a common theme throughout the book, and we could talk about it more. But uh, what's really important here, to even despite all that, he's also not saying that they're not Christian. Yes, he's yes, saying that's true. that they're all brothers, right? I think it, it, what is it in First um, Corinthians three? It's a little bit ahead, but he goes, "But I, brothers, knowledge of his brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants." In yes, Christ. he's correcting Christians at yes. this point. He's not saying you're not saved because you're fighting over these issues. That's right. They're saying there's infants in Christ mm-hmm. and then there's maturity in mm-hmm. Christ. So he's acknowledging that there's, there's a difference there, but he's saying that this divi- this divisiveness mm-hmm. basically needs to stop. Yes. Like get your priorities straight. Yes, yeah. and, and, and he's pointing out the irony in this situation because the people are claiming to be ardent followers of Paul or ardent followers of Apollos or ardent followers of, of Cephas or Christ, and yet they're completely missing the point yeah. because they're... They're all pointing towards Christ. They're all pointing pointing towards salvation, and yet these people are so stuck. They're so stuck in are in in holding up the wisdom of their specific favorite teacher. Yeah. And in First Corinthians two, that theme continues because Paul talks about how the teachers are preaching a kind of wisdom, but this wisdom that's recognized by those who know God. It's a wisdom for the spiritually mature. It's things, what you can get from from the, the apostles' teaching are things taught by the Spirit of God. So he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 2. And 1 Corinthians 3, like you were saying, he's, he he accuses the people. He, he basically just tells them that the Christians in Corinth are not spiritually mature because right. they're missing the point. Right. Right. So he, he, he charges them with being infants. You're not living by the spirit of God. You're still living as worldly people. And these divisions among you are representations of that. They are symptoms of that. They're proof of that. They're displaying your jealousy uh, and your infighting. Uh, in verse 6, Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Um, you know, and he moves beyond the plant analogy, and then he begins to use a building analogy where the church is the temple of God. The workers are building it. Uh, so the people are the temple of God, sorry. And the workers, the apostles, the teachers, they're building up this temple. Uh, and, you know, they need to build with the right things. They need to be building on the foundation of Christ because God will test it and the inferior materials will not last. They're yes. not going to pass the test. And it's really interesting that he's he's paralleling that with division. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that like if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though through himself saved, mm-hmm. but only as through fire. So essentially, that's kind of a, you know, you can map that into a lot of other verses, like in Matthew, where he says, cut off your hand if it makes you sin kind of thing. And you also map that up with uh, 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 Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, Mm -hmm. Uh, Shadrach, excuse me, 
Anyways, you map these things up where they're standing in the fire and crisis of, there's another person in the fire and they don't burn. This idea that we're going to be standing in judgment mm-hmm. and will our works burn up mm-hmm. or will they persist because they were built on the right foundation? Right. Are they of Christ or are they of us? That's exactly are they right. Of man? So what he's yeah. saying is by dividing over these things, you're creating your own theology, essentially, your own ideas, mm-hmm. and they're just going to burn up because mm-hmm. they're not built on Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's the parallel he's drawing there. You're built, you're made like hay, sticks, right? You're not using stone or gold or like any of these things that are that are fine or good. Anyway, so it's interesting that he parallels that with division. And then in First Corinthians four, Paul just really goes for it. He really, really goes for it. He 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 tells the. Corinthian Christians, how they should view the apostles, how they should view the teachers of that time. And that is as servants of Christ entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. That the t- So essentially that the teaching that they're given, it doesn't originate from them. The value of the teaching comes from God even though they may stylistically differ from one another. Then Paul moves into um, a very sarcastic treatment of the Corinthians' arrogance. So he's correcting them here in in a biting way. He he begins by saying, um, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So in other words... You're not the originator of Christianity and you need to stop acting like you are. We have all of us received salvation. We have received Christianity. It's been passed on to us. So a little less arrogance in our treatment of Christianity and the teachings of God is called for. If the apostles themselves aren't arrogant, if the apostles themselves aren't like, wait till you hear my new teaching about Christ, (laughs) then perhaps you shouldn't be arrogant about their teaching either because it's been given to them by God. It's not originating from them. Uh, Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 4 uh, then brings in the sarcasm. It says, already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. So essentially, he's like, you believe that you're beyond us. You're better than us because we're not even holding on uh, on to that. Um, you're already reigning with Christ. You've already received your new bodies. Fabulous for you. That's why you know best, isn't it? Good for you, Corinthian Christians. Uh, verse 8 continues. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. And we know this is sarcasm because he's already called them infants in Christ, right? Um, so Paul goes on to urge them to stop thinking of themselves in these high and lofty terms, but ra- it, it, and rather than that, to imitate Paul in recognizing that God's wisdom is the only true wisdom, 
not the apostles, not the Corinthian Christians. 1 Corinthians 5 brings up the second issue in the church that's plaguing them, uh, which is sexual immorality. And Paul says, do not tolerate sexual immorality in the church. What are you doing? Stop it. Right. Paul clarifies himself. He said that when he had previously written to the Corinthians, he had said to avoid the sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters, slanderers and drunkards. He did not mean non-Christians because he says that wouldn't be possible anyway. He meant to he, he meant to avoid people claiming to be Christian while openly living and celebrating these things rather than struggling against these things because it's a poisonous attitude. Avoid that. First Corinthians chapter six brings up the third issue. Christians are suing other Christians. They're bringing their Christian brothers and sisters to secular judges, to secular courts. And Paul is ashamed of them because he says this demonstrates their incompetence. He's like, is there no one wise among you that you can go to to settle your issues? You don't have anyone that you both can trust in their wisdom to settle your issues. You're going to go to pagan courts? Really? So he says that it's it's a shame to them. In verse 7, he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So essentially, their witness is being ruined to the outside world because they can't get their act together. That's the whole, why would you not rather be wronged or cheated for the witness of Christ to maintain that witness? Uh, Paul deals also with quotes from them. So they have written Paul a letter and he's responding back. So like, uh, I have the right to do anything. But Paul goes, but not everything is beneficial and you should not be mastered by anything. Uh, There's another saying about how food is meant for the stomach and vice versa. And that launches Paul into a warning about sexual immorality. So just because the sexual urge is a natural urge does not mean that you can do whatever you want to with that urge. There is still a morality outside of our human urges that as Christians, we have vowed to follow over our urges. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, The Corinthians have written to Paul about how it's good for men to be single. But Paul writes back that sexual immorality is evil, that marriage is good, that they should not discourage marriage because that results in sexual immorality. So singleness can be good and marriage can be good. There needs to be a balance here. Uh, Paul also gives a teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 that would have been radical at the time. Uh, In marriage, he teaches, it's not just the husband who has authority over the wife's body, but the wife also has authority over the husband's body. Marriage must be monogamous, which was not how it was seen in the Roman Empire. Men were encouraged. It was normal for them to have affairs. Uh, and, and, the, and the husband had authority over the wife's body, but the wife didn't have authority over the husband's body, just in, in contemporary culture. So Paul is, is flipping this, and he's talking again about that mutual um, 
that mutual life that they're supposed to share and the mutual submission to each other in that way. Marriage must be monogamous, both from the husband and wife perspective. Uh, Paul also deals with various marriage situations and he deals with status issues. So in terms of Roman slavery and in in terms of circumcision, and he also deals with the unmarried all here in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul deals with food sacrificed to idols. So the idea here is that Christians were saying, well, we know that idols really aren't gods. There's nothing. So we can, like idols aren't anything. So so we can eat all food, even food sacrificed to idols. It doesn't matter. And Paul was saying back to them, yes, that's true, but... Also, don't be a stumbling block because not everyone thinks that way about idols. Not everyone knows what you do about them not being God. So for those people who believe that idols are something, eating meat sacrificed to idol or eating idol meat would be to worship that idol. It would be a sin for them. So be careful. Add some nuance to your perspective on this. Um, verse nine says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay. Becoming a stumbling block to the weak is a sin. It's a sin against Christ to lead a weaker Christian into sin. So we have to be careful. We don't need to be obsessed with our own rights and thinking about, you know, what we can get away with as Christians we need to instead be thinking and be concerned about how our actions might impact others in practical ways. Okay. First Corinthians 9, Paul uses himself as an example in this chapter, how he sets aside his rights as an apostle to serve the church. He says this, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. That's verse 19 and 20. So he's talking about his lifestyle, how he was living uh, and how that impacted those around him and either gave him a window to witness or shut the door on witnessing. He wanted a window to witness. Essentially, we need to be thinking of the needs of others. These people need me to what? In order for them to be able to hear me. Uh, All right, We, we need to live intentionally not for ourselves, but rather to fulfill our mission as ambassadors of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes back into the history of the Old Testament in order to warn against idolatry. And then he also gives advice on when to not eat meat sacrificed to idols, essentially when you know that it has been. This is an interesting chapter. First Corinthians chapter 11, he brings up another issue that's going on in the Corinthian church at the time, and that is 
worship services. So he gives a teaching on head coverings during praying and prophesying in worship. So essentially his teaching is men should not wear a head covering. Women should wear a head covering. Uh, and, and culturally what's going on here, what seems to have been going on here, in Roman society, men wore head coverings uh, to, sim- to show that they were religious officials. It was like a status thing, a higher uh, status thing. And women who were married wore headscarves to symbolize their 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 chastity, their chastity, their their monogamy towards their husband. Okay, their relationship to their husband. So, if Christian men uh, in worship wore a head covering to symbolize their special status, it'd be rather insulting because they're drawing attention to themselves rather than drawing attention to Christ, who is their head. And then if a married woman prayed or prophesied during a Christian worship service and took off her headscarf, she would be essentially dishonoring her husband, becoming free from him during service, which is quite scandalous if you think about it. So again, Paul is seems to be bringing back all of these cultural elements He's bringing it back to thinking about how to properly represent Christ to the culture that you're in. Don't unnecessarily break boundaries here. Be a good witness. Don't confuse the gospel. Don't make political statements in the name of the gospel, right? Keep the gospel the gospel. Be careful. And then he also talks about similarly being respectful when celebrating the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is all about spiritual gifts and how they all work together to to build up the church. The word is to edify the church, but it means to build up the church, to make it better. So wisdom, the, the spiritual gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And we're told that God gives these gifts as he determines. And the idea is that we're all supposed to be working together like that body. And God is gifting that body as it needs. Different parts do different things. And it's all orchestrated by Christ, the head of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, famous outside of the Bible because it is the love chapter, right? (laughs) Love is patient, kind. And it's all about um, what Christian love truly looks like. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, this is all about he wants the Christian church to strive for order in her worship services. Uh, And he gives advice on how to exercise the gifts of the spirit while still maintaining that order in, in these worship services. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Another issue that the Corinthian church seems to be having is brought up, and that is over the resurrection. So Paul teaches on the importance of Christ actually physically having raised from the dead. Uh, And then Paul and Sosthenes, because it's not just Paul writing this letter, remember, it's also Sosthenes, argue that we will experience a resurrection from the dead as well. Just as Christ physically rose from the dead, so will we physically rise from the dead. Uh, that is part of our Christian hope. And this is, he he uh, he 
quotes, he requotes from the Old Testament, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because the resurrection is going, is going to happen for all of us. And the final chapter of 1 Corinthians is 16. And this is just the uh, final matters. Paul just Paul and Sosthenes wrap everything up. So they talk about how they're collecting money for the church in Jerusalem because uh, the church in Jerusalem at this time in Judea is struggling because of a famine that was prophesied back in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul talks about his travel plans and other traveling Christian teachers are named as well uh, here in 1 Corinthians 16. All right, we have three more chapters. Anything you want to say? Oh uh, yeah, I've well, just been powering. Oh, I know through. you've been doing a good job. But I'll be really quick. First Corinthians thirteen. Sure. Uh, says something really important there because it's he's talking mm-hmm. about he's going for faith, hope, and he goes, yeah. faith, hope, and love. These three abide, but the grace of these is love. Mm-hmm. That's a really important thing because what he's talking about the whole time there is about division. The reason why there is division among you is because you're not loving each other. Right. So it's tying to this uh, this overarching concept is that like you might have all the faith in the world to move mountains, but it's useless if you don't have love. Right. It's a use. It's a dead faith if you don't have love. So this idea that love being greater than faith, it, it really kind of um, what it does is it really makes you understand that it's not just a matter of belief in and of itself. It's when you believe something, you'll behave like what you believe. It, right. it, you will follow through on what you believe. Your right. faith has follow through. That that's is what, true belief. And that's yes. what true belief is. That's what James talks about. Yeah. So here, Paul's essentially hearkening on that same concept as James, that they're not in conflict with each other. People have kind of made these into a conflict, probably for reasons I really don't quite understand. But <laughs> the people have made mm-hmm. it into a conflict. But they're really saying the same thing here, is that like when you have true faith, you will follow through on that faith. Mm-hmm. And that follow through, because love in the Greek is an action word. Mm-hmm. You will then act it out. You will mm-hmm. actually truly care for these people. So that's what he's talking about there. Yes. Yeah. And it is interesting in, in a book where he's dealing with problems, because they're having a lot of problems, this is where we get the teaching on what Christian loves, love looks like. And we That's think it's right. very unfortunate that we we normally just divorce this chapter we've from... romanticized it. Yeah, yeah. We've, we, we divorce it of- from its context where it's like, it's in here because this is what you need to do. This is how you need to love in order to stop these issues from these issues from these div- becoming awful. Right, because these issues, the sexual immorality, everything that goes on this, the idolatry and all these yeah. things are just causing immense division. They're like the, the kind of the roots of these divisions. So he's yeah. like, here's how you stop it. Focus on Christ's love. Focus on what it means to love, right? It's like you have faith. He's calling them in the faith. Yeah. But he's like, but you've like your faith is pretty much useless unless you have love. So yeah. is it, anyways, it's patience and self-sacrifice and struggle is is a hard sell, but it's yeah. it's the truth. It's, it's what it is. That's what it means to be like Christ. Okay, we're gonna do the first three chapters of Second Corinthians and call it a day. Right. So Second Corinthians chapter one, uh, we learned that this is Paul and Timothy writing to the Corinthian Christians, uh, and it, and they speak about the struggles that they're having for Christ and their travel issues back to Corinth. So why they haven't made it back to Corinth thus far? That's all. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, Paul urges uh, the Christians to forgive and fully integrate back into the fellowship someone who had somehow sinned against Paul. So forgiving the repentant person is a way to restore Christian unity and not play into the plans of Satan. So when someone is truly repentant, you let them back in. You do not hold that against them. You got to forgive them and let them back in. Paul then talks about some of his travels and he compares himself to a willing captive in the triumphal procession of Christ. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3 is all about the boldness of the gospel. Uh, You know, he teaches about how the law of God through Moses brought death, but it still came with glory. Okay, remember Moses's face glowed after he would go visit God in the presence of God. He would come out and his face would glow and he would have to uh, wear a veil. Paul uses that here um, in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 3. And then also he talks about how the law of Christ brings life and it also comes with glory. Those of us who follow Christ receive glory in the way that we are being actively transformed into the image of God. So just as Moses's face reflected the glory of God, so now our very lives become reflections of God's glory. And he pretty much like he t- he opens the uh, this chapter mm-hmm. with this verse, which is really powerful because this gets people some people for a whirl. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. You, the church, mm-hmm. are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This pulls back down to legalism again, these different things that are happening in the church. But what's amazing about that is that your life is the letter written by the apostles. Mm-hmm. Like, regardless of what they're, like, what they're saying here is not of, of importance. What he, it's ironic as we read the Bible. It's, it's like, that's, that's the point of this letter that I'm writing mm-hmm. to you is so that you become the letter. Right. You, right, that's the whole point. You need to be transformed right. by it through the power of the, of the spirit of the living God. And um, that there gets people for a world because it's not mm-hmm. that list that you talked about last time. It's not like that checklist or does it fit into a box mm-hmm. really because it's like God is not speaking to us through ink alone. It's not like we can reduce it just down to the King James. It's like, oh, just right. That yeah. God is so much bigger than that. It's through these letters that God is getting to us so that we can become a living stones of his temple or whatever it may be. But yeah, that's that's a really imp- powerful line there where he's just yeah, talking about Yeah, the word we, of God has to be in right, our hearts. That's right. We are the letter. Yeah. That, yeah. right, do you see what I'm saying? That's what he's saying. I hope that sinks in because... It's a very cool concept to, yes. to think about, especially when you think about how the, a copy of the law of God was put into the Ark of the Covenant, which was uh, eventually put in the, which was put in the tabernacle. It was seen as being in the presence of God. And now the Christian church, we are the temple of God. We are in the presence of him. And so now the words of his new covenant are need to be in our heart, just as right. the words of the old well, covenant were in the Ark of the Covenant. And you think about it. So, Paul's thinking, okay, I'm going to die. Like, this is my life is here to die. Yeah. So you're my letter yeah. of recommendation uh, from Christ delivered by us. Right? Your letter from Christ delivered by us. So basically, when you die too, right, mm-hmm. you're going to go up and you're going to be our testimony. You're going to be our letter right, to Christ. Right. So it's kind of this idea of this, like, of, of this perpetual, like, um, passing on the, uh, uh, passing the torch, so to speak. But anyways. Alrighty. Well, that's it. We have wrapped all that we're going to wrap for this week. So I hope you enjoy continuing to read and study through the New Testament. We'll see you here next week. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.